Section 19 Autobiography of John Stuart Mill This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tony Richardson Chapter 7, Part 4 General View of the Remainder of my life it was my obvious duty to be one of the small minority who protested against this perverted state of public opinion i was not the first to protest it ought to be remembered to the honor of mr hughes and of mr ludlow that they by writings published at the very beginning of the struggle began the protestation Mr. Bright followed in one of the most powerful of his speeches, followed by others not less striking. I was on the point of adding my words to theirs when there occurred, towards the end of 1861, the seizure of the southern envoys on board a British vessel by an officer of the United States. Even English forgetfulness has not yet had time to lose all remembrance of the explosion of feeling in England which then burst forth the expectation prevailing for some weeks of war with the United States and the warlike preparations actually commenced on this side. While this state of things lasted, there was no chance of a hearing for anything favorable to the American cause, and, moreover, I agreed with those who thought the act unjustifiable, and such as to require that England should demand its disavowal. When the disavowal came, and the alarm of war was over, I wrote in January 1862 the paper in Fraser's magazine entitled the contest in America, and I shall always feel grateful to my daughter that her urgency prevailed on me to write it when I did, for we were then on the point of setting out for a journey of some months in Greece and Turkey, and but for her, I should have deferred writing till our return. Written and published when it was, this paper helped to encourage those liberals who had felt overborne by the tide of liberal opinion and to form in favor of the good cause a nucleus of opinion which increased gradually and after the success of the north began to seem probable rapidly when we returned from our journey i wrote a second article a preview of professor carnes's book published in the Westminster Review. England is paying the penalty, in many uncomfortable ways, of the durable resentment which her ruling classes have stirred up in the United States by their ostentatious wishes for the ruin of America as a nation. They have reason to be thankful that a few, if only a few, known writers and speakers standing firmly by the americans in the time of their greatest difficulty expected a partial diversion of these bitter feelings 
and made great britain not altogether odious to the americans this duty having been performed my principal occupation for the next two years was on subjects not political the publication of mr austin's lectures on jurisprudence after his decease gave me an opportunity of paying a deserved tribute to his memory and at the same time expressing some thoughts on a subject on which in my old days of benthamism i had bestowed much study but the chief product of those years was the examination of sir william hamilton's philosophy his lectures published in eighteen sixty and eighteen sixty one i had read towards the end of the latter year with a half-formed intention of giving an account of them in a review but i soon found that this would be idle and that justice could not be done to the subject in less than a volume i had then to consider whether it would be advisable that i myself should attempt such a performance on consideration there seemed to be strong reasons for doing so i was greatly disappointed with the lectures i read them certainly with no prejudice against sir william hamilton i had up to that time deferred the study of his notes to read on account of their unfinished state but i had not neglected his discussions in philosophy and though i knew that his general mode of treating the facts of mental philosophy differed from that of which i most approved yet his vigorous polemic against the latter transcendentalists and his strenuous assertion of some important principles especially the relativity of human knowledge gave me many points of sympathy with his opinions and made me think that genuine psychology had considerably more to gain than to lose by his authority and reputation his lectures and the dissertation on reed dispelled this illusion even the discussions read by the light which these throw on them lost much of their value i found that the points of apparent agreement between his opinions and mine were more verbal than real that the important philosophical principles which i had thought he recognized were so explained away by him as to mean little or nothing or were continually lost sight of and doctrines entirely inconsistent with them were taught in nearly every part of his philosophical writings my estimation of him was therefore so far altered that instead of regarding him as occupying a kind of intermediate position between the two rival philosophies holding some of the principles of both and supplying to both powerful weapons of attack and defence i now looked upon him as one of the pillars and in this country from his high philosophical reputation the chief pillar of that one of the two which seemed to me to be erroneous now the difference between these two schools of philosophy that of intuition and that of experience and association is not a mere matter of abstract speculation it is full of practical consequences and lies at the foundation of all the greatest differences of practical opinion in an age of progress
the practical reformer has continually to demand that changes be made in things which are supported by powerful and widely spread feelings or to question the apparent necessity and indefeasibleness of established facts and it is often an indispensable part of his argument to show how those powerful feelings had their origin and how those facts came to seem necessary and indefeasible there is therefore a natural hostility between him and a philosophy which discourages the explanation of feelings and moral facts by circumstances and association and prefers to treat them as ultimate elements of human nature a philosophy which is addicted to holding up favorite doctrines as intuitive truths and deems intuition to be the voice of nature and of god speaking with an authority higher than that of our reason in particular i have long felt that the prevailing tendency to regard all the marked distinctions of human character as innate and in the main indelible and to ignore the irresistible proofs that by far the greatest part of those differences whether between individuals races or sexes are such as not only might but naturally would be produced by differences in circumstances is one of the chief hindrances of the rational treatment of great social questions and one of the great stumbling blocks to human improvement this tendency has its source in the intuitional metaphysics which characterized the reaction of the nineteenth century against the eighteenth and it is a tendency so agreeable to human indolence as well as to conservative interests generally that unless attacked at the very root it is sure to be carried to even a greater length than is really justified by the more moderate forms of the intuitional philosophy that philosophy not always in its moderate forms had ruled the thought of europe for the greater part of a century my father's analysis of the mind my own logic and Professor Bain's great treatise, had attempted to reintroduce a better mode of philosophizing, latterly with quite as much success as could be expected. But I had for some time felt that the mere contrast of the two philosophers was not enough, that there ought to be a hand-to-hand -hand fight between them, that controversial as well as expository writings were needed, and that the time was come when such controversy would be useful. Considering, then, the writings and fame of Sir W. Hamilton as the great fortress of the intuitional philosophy in this country, a fortress the more formidable from the imposing character, and the in many respects great personal merits and mental endowments of the man, I thought it might be a real service to philosophy to attempt a thorough examination of all his most important doctrines and an estimate of his general claims to eminence as a philosopher, and I was confirmed in this resolution by observing that in the writings of at least one, and him one of the ablest, 
of sir w hamilton's followers his peculiar doctrines were made the justification of a view of religion which i hold to be profoundly immoral that it is our duty to bow down and worship before a being whose moral attributes are affirmed to be unknowable by us and to be perhaps extremely different from those which when we are speaking of our fellow creatures we call by the same names as i advanced in my task the damage to sir w hamilton's reputation became greater than i at first expected through the almost incredible multitude of inconsistencies which showed themselves on comparing different passages with one another it was my business however to show things exactly as they were and i did not flinch from it i endeavored always to treat the philosopher whom i criticized with the most scrupulous fairness and i knew that he had abundance of disciples and admirers to correct me if i ever unintentionally did him injustice many of them accordingly have answered me more or less elaborately and they have pointed out oversights and misunderstandings though few in number and mostly very unimportant in substance such of those as had to my knowledge been pointed out before the publication of the latest edition at present the third have been corrected there and the remainder of the criticisms have been as far as seemed necessary replied to on the whole the book has done its work it has shown the weak side of sir william hamilton and has reduced his too great philosophical reputation within more moderate bounds and by some of its discussions as well as by two expository chapters on the notions of matter and of mind it has perhaps thrown additional light on some of the disputed questions in the domain of psychology and metaphysics after the completion of the book on hamilton i applied myself to a task which a variety of reasons seemed to render specially incumbent upon me that of giving an account and forming an estimate of the doctrines of august comte i had contributed more than any one else to make his speculations known in england and in consequence chiefly of what i had said of him in my logic he had readers and admirers among thoughtful men on this side of the channel at a time when his name had not yet in france emerged from obscurity so unknown and unappreciated was he at the time when my logic was written and published that to criticize his weak points might well appear superfluous while it was a duty to give as much publicity as one could to the important contributions he had made to philosophic thought at the time however at which i have now arrived this state of affairs had entirely changed his name at least was known almost universally and the general character of his doctrines very widely he had taken his place in the estimation both of friends and opponents 
as one of the conspicuous figures in the thought of the age. The better parts of his speculations had made great progress in working their way into those minds which, by their previous culture and tendencies, were fitted to receive them. Under cover of those better parts, those of a worse character, greatly developed and added to in his later writings, had also made some way, having obtained active and enthusiastic adherents, some of them of no inconsiderable personal merit in England, France, and other countries. These causes not only made it desirable that someone should undertake the task of sifting what is good from what is bad in M. Comte's speculations, but seemed to impose on myself in particular a special obligation to make the attempt. This I accordingly did in two essays, published in successive numbers of the Westminster Review, and reprinted in a small volume under the title August Comp and Positivism. The writings which I have now mentioned, together with a small number of papers in periodicals which I have not deemed worth preserving, were the whole of the products of my activity as a writer during the years from 1859 to 1865. In the early part of the last mentioned year, in compliance with the wish frequently expressed to me by working men, I published cheap people's editions of those of my writings which seemed the most likely to find readers among the working classes, visibly, principles of political economy, liberty, and representative government. This was a considerable sacrifice of my pecuniary interest, especially as I resigned all idea of deriving profit from the cheap editions, and after ascertaining from my publishers the lowest price which they thought would remunerate them on the usual terms of an equal division of profits, I gave up my half share to enable the price to be fixed still lower. To the credit of Mrs. Longman, they fixed, unasked, a certain number of years after which the copyright and stereotype plates were to revert to me, and a certain number of copies after the sale of which I should receive half of any further profit. This number of copies, which in the case of the political economy was 10,000, has for some time been exceeded, and the people's editions have begun to yield me a small but unexpected pecuniary return, though very far from an equivalent for the diminution of profit from the library editions. In this summary of my outward life, I have now arrived at the period at which my tranquil and retired existence as a writer of books was to be exchanged for the less congenial occupation of a member of the House of Commons. The proposal made to me early in 1865 by some electors of Westminster did not present the idea to me for the first time. 
it was not even the first offer i had received for more than ten years previous in consequence of my opinions on the irish land question mr lucas and mr duffy in the name of the popular party in ireland offered to bring me into parliament for an irish county which they could easily have done but the incompatibility of a seat in parliament with the office i then held in the india house precluded even consideration of the proposal after i had quitted the india house several of my friends would gladly have seen me a member of parliament but there seemed no probability that the idea would ever take any practical shape i was convinced that no numerous or influential portion of any electoral body really wished to be represented by a person of my opinions and that one who possessed no local connection or popularity and who did not choose to stand as the mere organ of a party had small chance of being elected anywhere unless through the expenditure of money now it was and is my fixed conviction that a candidate ought not to incur one farthing of expense for undertaking a public duty such of the lawful expenses of an election as have no special reference to any particular candidate ought to be borne as a public charge either by the state or by the locality what has to be done by the supporters of each candidate in order to bring his claims properly before the constituency should be done by unpaid agency or by voluntary subscription if members of the electoral body or others are willing to subscribe money of their own for the purpose of bringing by lawful means into parliament someone who they think would be useful there no one is entitled to object but that the expense or any part of it should fall on the candidate is fundamentally wrong because it amounts in reality to buying his seat even on the most favorable supposition as to the mode in which the money is expended there is a legitimate suspicion that anyone who gives money for a leave to undertake a public trust has other than public ends to promote by it and a consideration of the greatest importance the cost of elections when borne by the candidates deprives the nation of the services as members of parliament of all who cannot or will not afford to incur a heavy expense i do not say that so long as there is scarcely a chance for an independent candidate to come into parliament without complying with this vicious practice it must always be morally wrong in him to spend money provided that no part of it is either directly or indirectly employed in corruption but to justify it he ought to be very certain that he can be of more use to his country as a member of parliament than in any other mode which is open to him and this assurance in my own case i did not feel it was by no means clear to me 
that I could do more to advance the public objects which had a claim on my exertions from the benches of the House of Commons than from the simple position of a writer. I felt, therefore, that I ought not to seek election to Parliament, much less to expend any money in procuring it. But the conditions of the question were considerably altered when a body of electors sought me out and spontaneously offered to bring me forward as their candidate. If it should appear on explanation that they persisted in this wish, knowing my opinions and accepting the only conditions on which I could conscientiously serve, it was questionable whether this was not one of those calls upon a member of the community by his fellow citizens which he was scarcely justified in rejecting i therefore put their disposition to the proof by one of the frankest explanations ever tendered i should think to an electoral body by a candidate i wrote in reply to the offer a letter for publication saying that i had no personal wish to be a member of parliament that i thought a candidate ought neither to canvass nor to incur any expense and that i could not consent to do either i said further that if elected i could not undertake to give any of my time and labor to their local interests with respect to general politics i told them without reserve what i thought on a number of important subjects which they had asked my opinion and one of these being the suffrage i was made known to them among other things my conviction as i was bound to do since i intended if elected to act on it that women were entitled to representation in parliament on the same terms with men it was the first time doubtless that such a doctrine had ever been mentioned to english electors and the fact that I was elected after proposing it gave the start to the movement which has since become so vigorous in favor of women's suffrage. Nothing at the time appeared more unlikely than that a candidate, if candidate I could be called, whose professions and conduct set so completely at defiance all ordinary notions of electioneering should nevertheless be elected a well-known literary man who was also a man of society was heard to say that the almighty himself would have no chance of being elected on such a program i strictly adhered to it neither spending money nor canvassing nor did i take any personal part in the election until about a week preceding the day of nomination when I attended a few public meetings to state my principles and give to any questions which the electors might exercise their just right of putting to me for their own guidance, answers as plain and unreserved as my address. On one subject only, my religious opinions, I announced from the beginning that I would answer no questions, a determination which appeared to be completely approved by those who attended the meetings my frankness on all other subjects on which i was interrogated evidently did me far more good than my answers whatever they might be 
did harm among the proofs i received of this one is too remarkable not to be recorded in the pamphlet thoughts on parliamentary reform i had said rather bluntly that the working classes though differing from those of some other countries and being ashamed of lying are yet generally liars <laughs> this passage some opponent got printed in a placard which was handed to me at a meeting chiefly composed of the working classes and i was asked whether i had written and published it i at once answered i did scarcely were these two words out of my mouth when vehement applause resounded through the whole meeting it was evident that the working people were so accustomed to expect equivocation and evasion from those who sought their suffrage that when they found instead of that a direct avowal of what was likely to be disagreeable to them instead of being affronted they concluded at once that this was a person whom they could trust a more striking instance never came under my notice of what i believe is the experience of those who best know the working classes that the most essential of all recommendations to their favors is that of complete straightforwardness its presence outweighs in their minds very strong objections while no amount of other qualities will make amends for its apparent absence the first working man who spoke after the incident i have mentioned it was mr odger said that the working classes had no desire not to be told of their faults they wanted friends not flatterers and felt under obligation to anyone who told them anything in themselves which he sincerely believed to require amendment and to this the meeting heartily responded end of section nineteen recording by tony richardson